A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online. And built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I would certainly hope that in conducting this march in our city, that we will act in a responsible manner, demonstrating to the Eamon McCann's name is synonymous with the civil rights movement, socialism and his home city of Derry. So it seems to me that it was only a week ago that we were gathered here in our thousands to shout out our no to war. Just you wait, they say, it'll all work out. Now we know nothing that they promised has been delivered. He's been active in politics since the 1960s and was a sitting councillor until March 2021 when illness forced him to give up his seat. Let me deal first with the nonsense that was talked earlier today in this chamber by people on the left who had advised a, uh, a vote to leave. Such people must be in alignment that have been supporting Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage and the rest of that crew across the water. Absolutely untrue. But not being a councillor doesn't mean he's retiring from activism. I think it's Sinn Féin are trying to colonise history. Uh, they're trying to claim every advance sort of in any bit of militancy over uh, all the years of the troubles as their own. Uh, and of course this isn't true. In this episode of The Bell Tell, Garrett Hargan interviews Eamon McCann about his influences, his views and whether he thinks there'll be a united Ireland. What would you say growing up in the bog side informed your politics? I think mean, growing up in the bog side shaped my politics. But you remember, sir, I was born in 1943. So the years that I remember growing up sort of would have been from the late 40s, sort of into the 50s. You know, and uh, things were certainly different. I mean, the bog side was a place which had been beleaguered in the 1920s. I mean, you all those stories. Uh, we're very well aware of sectarian discrimination against the bogside and against Catholics. We're acutely aware of that, uh, particularly in relation to housing, because while I look back on it with warm nostalgia, the fact of the matter is that housing was very, very poor, very overcrowded. Uh, we had, what, three adults and five children and two-bedroom house, and that was hardly considered overcrowded uh, at that time, and very poor houses. Uh, and when people talk about nonsense, but the politics were less sectarian then. Obviously, they were. You know, and sort of the troubles have driven just driven people apart from being sort of physically, and people have been burnt out of houses, and all that stuff. I mean, further divided people. But I like to remember sort of that I grew up in households sort of where people were regarded as a, a heroes for what they had done for the working class, whether in which of uh, our two islands. And I think that was a benefit to me in the development of my politics. And, and, and to go back to <laughs> October 5th, 1968, marchers were met with violence that day, weren't they? On the- Absolutely. I mean, the march, I don't know what influence it would have had had the 
RUC behaved themselves, you know, but it was the fact that they attacked the march, and it wasn't just controlling the march, they attacked the march. What started as a peaceful civil rights march turned into a battlefield. Despite appeals by march leaders for no violence, trouble flared when steel-helmeted police altered the march's route to exclude a Protestant area of the town. As a protest, the marchers refused to take the alternative route. It resulted first in deadlock, then violence. Um, one of the other things that don't actually come out, because history is a strange thing, so there was the camera gave, I forget his name, uh, it was an RTE cameraman who was there, and it was his photographs, which actually were around the world, then a couple of hours after that march, uh, ending and I created sort of an enormous fuss of questions in the House of Commons and so on. Worst thing thing that had been happening, worst thing thing that had been happening uh, uh, in the North and the peace attack on, on the October the 5th uh, uh, March, but they hadn't been, people hadn't seen them, hadn't seen them. And that evening, sort of said, and we're watching on our black and white television, and there we were on television. The television pictures and that one day changed, you know, the world's perception, don't want to be too grandiose about it, but the world's perception of what was happening uh, uh, in Northern Ireland. You, you had mentioned there some of the key aims of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, what do you think were its greatest achievements and do you think it failed in certain respects? Oh, I don't think the civil rights movement failed at all. Absolutely not. And I think one of the reasons the civil rights, the successes of the civil rights movement are being written out of history is that they contradict the standard narrative that here you had two communities, one being uh, a extremely, you know, savagely discriminated against, and another community, and they were fighting about it. That's now, uh, back in, in, in a sentence, is how people understand. E.E. Uh, uh, Northern Ireland, right, looking back on it. And they also think it's also, and this happens everywhere, where people look back on history, and they look at uh, a, a, some event or some development, uh, it happened, and they say, look, you know, they understand that they analyse it in terms of the intervening years and the perspective of the years or decades which uh, have uh, passed. The Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the Special Powers Act was abolished. There was a point system for the distribution of housing, exactly as we had asked before, which was revolutionary. Uh, uh, it was the most advanced anti-discrimination legislation in Europe sort of uh, uh, at the time, there had been an agreement on the disarming of the police, there had been an agreement on the disbandment of the B-Special uh, Constabulary. Now, but these were all the Derry Corporation, to end discrimination in Derry Corporation and the gerrymandered nature of it, the corporation was abolished. It was abolished, totally. <laughs> so it never came back. And there was an appointed, the, uh, uh, what did they call it? It's, uh, uh, it was a sort of, uh, the commission, the commission. A commission was appointed to run Derry. Sort of, it wasn't the, to get rid of sort of, of the uh, sectarian nature sort of, of the council. Interesting, rarely mentioned. Rarely, it's been forgotten about it because it wasn't violent enough. You know, had there been shots fired during it, people would remember it sort of and see it as part of the continuum that led uh, a, to the present day. The, it should always be remembered that most of the demands of the civil rights movement had been met by 1972-73. Of course, bloody Sunday kicked it all off again, but legislatively, in terms of advanced sort of, of uh, the law and public order, law sort of, and let's just say, housing, 
uh, in uh, Northern Ireland. The achievements of the civil rights movement were immense. There has not been any period of such rapid change in Northern Ireland since. It certainly doesn't suit Republicans or Nationalists to uh, remember that, or at least to see it as having been as crucial and important as someone like me sees it. You know, and I'm very pleased to have been part of it. But uh, I've got a, my personal perspective on it is not the given my experience, is not the same as everybody else's, of course not. I was wanting to get your views on a, on a United Ireland poll. And, uh... Well, it, I can only speak for myself, sort of in relation to uh, what's happening with regard to uh, United Ireland. Uh, I mean, I'm not talking for any particular uh, political tendency. For a start, I don't believe that United Ireland is going to be as easy to achieve or that it will happen sort of within the uh, time time frame that's often talked about now. I mean, it's becoming quite common to say, but we'll have this solved by the end of the decade. That's only eight years from now, but how it's solved, oh, that's, uh, I think, no, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, sort of, and uh, and my own view as a socialist is that the idea of an awful lot of people, sort of the civic nationalism and all that there, you know, and now calls for civic unionism to step forward, and so forth. I haven't a clue what these phrases mean. None whatsoever. What is civic nationalism? And how does it differ from other things? Does it mean sort of that it's non-political? It's not non-political if it's nationalism. And the idea is sort of that they merge. There's great celebration made uh, any time you get a prominent figure from a Protestant background to join in some call or design some petition for it, as if that... I think we still underestimate, I think... If many people still underestimate the extent to which the Protestant sense of embattlement, particularly you know, uh, uh, in working class areas, underestimate the extent to which that is or has become you know, key to people's sense of identity. It's not a political view sort of that people have, and I mean, that people regard as moderate unionists. I mean, you talk to them, I talk to Doug Beatty, General AA about this and others and it's not a, a question that they have to shift their policy and so on. They've got sort of a sense of themselves. Now I don't agree with identity politics. I mean I think and also I think don't think it's permanent. I would go back again to 1968, 69, uh, 1970, where our perspective was the overthrow of both Irish states. Now that's said in a very gentle way now, yeah the South will have to change too and so forth. There's a, there's a, a, a sort of sense in which an awful lot as a propaganda of what calls itself civic nationalism, consists of saying, you know, we have to be nicer to the prods, and if we are, they sort of maybe be willing to come across to the, uh, to the side of the United Ireland. I think that's magical thinking. I think that we have, for example, look at the movement for a woman's right to choose. Whatever you think about it, sort of your own philosophical views and so forth, the way that took place north and south, and all sort of as it marched in Dublin and marched in Derry and Belfast for a moment's uh, uh, right to choose. I mean, just a, 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 a abortion referendum and a began sort of a long life sort of, of uh, fighting in various political causes. The women's movement in the last 10 years in Ireland has been the best political development in my lifetime. When you had people marching north and south at the same time, the same period, in the same couple of years, for the same objective, 
ankelse with divorce referendum, well, another example, eh, of that. That's not, of course, in, 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 there's no blackguard saying we must have a United Ireland and right to choose more. She says, but it is a United Ireland movement. This is not a campaign for a United Ireland. It's a United Ireland in action. And you see that all the time. And it's within that that I think the uh, possibility, the real possibility of United Ireland will be realised. Uh, that it will, that well, it is just a fact that will ease our way into this. It's, uh, it's just nonsense. I just say, oh, it will be a different country, sort of it won't be looking like the north or the south. Well, way, what way different? What way different? Why don't we spell it out? Instead of saying, we'll do this in Ireland, we'll have great potential and so forth. I mean, are we talking about United Ireland, will there be civil rights for everybody? Why isn't that said then? Are we talking sort of a, 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 a United Ireland in which there's a properly funded health service north and south, along the same lines north and south? And so on. Uh, there's fights going on like that, which are north-south. And I'm afraid it's a difficult thing to do, and not all that many people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very fully with me. But I think the, uh, a United Ireland will come about when the working class of both parts of Ireland rise up sort of against the oppression and economic uh, exploitation. That's what we'll see a United Ireland. And it, it's, I'm not super optimistic with any of this. Sorry. Do you fight the campaign yeah. for a United Ireland being led the wrong way? Then? I think I do, I do. I mean, well, I think if it doesn't factor in uh, a, the day-to-day things, when people here and on the Shankar Road, on the day-to-day basis... And in Dublin, in Cork, it's a day to day basis what they're worried about. Is there, are their children going to have a decent life when they grow up? Are they going to have decent homes? Uh, are they going to be able to afford a nutritious diet and all that? You know, it's a, a, those are the things that people are concerned about. The price of groceries on a day to day basis means more to people, sort of, than uh, the land boundaries of the Irish uh, state. So, uh, it's, uh, now, that is not reflected in our politics, but it should be and it could be. You know, so, I mean, I do think, Kurt, uh, uh, as I said, the idea of a gentle merger of North and South, and this will happen in a sort of organic way, you know, and we'll look around within the next 10 years and we'll talk about this decade. Is it all that's going to happen sort of a year 2030? Is it indeed? I wish somebody would lay out to me sort of a, a set of sprightness. Do you think without unionist buy-in that a United Ireland is yes. impossible? I, 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 you see, I don't think you can be unionist buy-in. Because if you, you buy into the United Ireland stuff, are you a unionist? I don't think you are. I mean, and the idea that you get a moderate unionist leadership and to uh, find a way of living peacefully alongside nationalism in Ireland, that's certainly not happened. Yet there have always been people in the middle. There's always, as they say, the labour movement provided cross community uh, leadership and a cross community dimension to our thinking. Sort of uh, a for, for 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 many years, but it's a uh, uh, you know can the unionists can the unions be coaxed in some way? Some of them can sort of a lot of middle class sort of uh, educated and enlightened as they would see themselves unionists are quite happy, you know, to say, yeah, let's have a United Ireland, or at least I'm willing to accept the United Ireland. It would be a grave mistake to imagine that those flickers sort of, of non-sectarian feeling emerging from unionism that they are actually going to uh, uh, burn unionism out uh, or sort of at least sort of a defying unionism to the extent to which it'll uh, uh, unite sort of across the body. I don't think that's... I, th- there's, I don't know where I came from, the optimism of the will. 
pessimism of the intellect. I forget who said Gramsci. Gramsci. Gramsci said that. You know, so you can will things to happen. And at the same time, that's great. That carries your campaigns forward. That pessimism of the intellect, because you know it might not come about. Oh, anyway, yes. Of course, all the things today you say could be wrong. I wanted to, to get your views on sectarianism in Northern mm. Ireland. Um, in your book, War in an Irish Town, you had said that the Good Friday Agreement was followed to begin with yeah. by allocating every citizen the orange or yeah. green camp, um, which then post-Friday Agreement has led to peaceful competition rather than confrontation. Yeah. Um, would you be able to kind of just give me an assessment of where you think we are here in terms well, of sectarianism? I do think so. If you look at the Good Friday Agreement, insofar as the Good Friday Agreement led to uh, the ceasefire, the Republican ceasefire, and in turn that made places more peaceful. That's what, and so, so it's part of one but mainly sort of the Good Friday Agreement brought the provisional IRA into constitutional politics. And of course, I mean, I'm not in favour of uh, uh, parliamentary violence of any sort, so that's a good thing. That's a good thing. At the same time, at the same time, there is what you mentioned a wee bit earlier, that the Good Friday Agreement, the Good Friday it allocates, you know, the entire population of the North into either the Green or the Orange camp, and then devises a superstructure within which it is suggested or assumed the two communities can coexist peacefully with one another. Now, that's a nice soft sort of aspiration. But in the process of trying to do it like that, you do divide people. When people then talk about, well, we're a peaceful cooperation between the two communities. Really, you've got to define the two communities. Who is living beside whom? That requires a, a, a division of people, a, you know, into Catholics uh, uh, and Protestants, uh, um, orange and green. Sort of, it's uh, a peaceful competition is much, much to be preferred to violent competition, of course, but if you want to end the division, if you want to sort of put sectarianism to bed then it has to be on the basis sort of all I believe of uh, pressure from below that it will be sort of the that it don't mean just the working class in terms of people who work in skilled jobs or going into factories and so the working class the people who are in the bottom half of society the people who are depriving, depriving minorities and women and gays and I think that if you had sort of mass revolt sort of north and south so I think that that's very fanciful at the moment. But if you had a United Ireland sort of might sort of just in a twinkling might suddenly sort of become possible and you look around. If you're looking at things in exactly the same way as a person from another community but of the same class, you know, I suppose the conventional wisdom is that we never get there. Nevertheless, it's an ideal to be aimed at. So I'll express it in that way. It's an ideal to be aimed at, not something that I think that I or anybody else can produce over the coming weeks. Do you think that there needs to be an alternative mandatory power sharing then, or do you think like Absolutely. Absolutely. Mandatory power sharing is a, a, there's an awful lot of things that I've, probably most things I've gotten wrong over the years, but one thing that I got right that I'm absolutely content with a, a, a position on, so is that mandatory power sharing is a way of squeezing out anybody apart from the orange and the green. Because how can you have sort of united between the two communities unless you have politics based upon the notion of community? The voting of Stormont, to get anything through Stormont, you have to have a majority of nationalists and a majority uh, of unionists electing sort of the uh, speaker and various other things that uh, that come up requires 
parallel uh, consensus. Now, how can you parallel consensus unless you know who's on what side of the parallel and so forth? And is sectarian in its nature? Now, we're now seeing, you know, sort of the emergence of people who say, we're not nationalists or unionists, sort of we're, uh, we're moderate people who want to work together. My, uh, across, so you know, have, it's widely acknowledged, you have three different camps. You have orange, green, and other. If that emerges a third, a third, a third, the Good Friday Agreement won't work. The Good Friday Agreement does not envisage any situation in which there would be uh, 40% of people who are neither nationalists or unionists, sort of, and then 30 and 30 or something like that there. If that happens, and it will, might, what's going to happen to all these structures based upon getting a, a majority of unionists and a majority of nationalists, they vote for the same thing. The final one I had on sectarianism was um, recently Michelle O'Neill came in for a lot of criticism um, for saying there was no alternative to violence in Northern Ireland. What would be your view on that? I think Michelle O'Neill is simply wrong. Uh, and what she said, there is an alternative. There's been, uh, the civil rights movement was an alternative. The idea that people were faced at a certain stage in the early 1970s with the inevitability of violence, that they had no choice, uh, uh, really, that, uh, that armed struggle was simply inevitable. That's not true. It's simply not true. People are not automatons. I mean, pre-programmed sort of to behave in a particular way or to adopt sort of, I mean, certain sets of uh, political ideas. But as I say, I mean, you know, in terms of the rights of people, sort of in the north of Ireland, great strides were made before a shot was fired, sort of after uh, 1968. It is simply not true to say there was no alternative. It was staring people in the face. Now, of course, sort of the, uh, when you consider sort of the violence of the British, and the British state, sort of in Ireland, which Bloody Sunday is the most obvious uh, example. But it's not as simple as I've just said it, but nevertheless, out of, uh, uh, it's there, the idea. There was progress made. There was progress made. The elimination sort of discrimination in housing was a huge achievement, huge achievement. And that was done. You know, the, uh, 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 the abolition of the Special Powers Act, that was done. I mean, there were things that were achieved and were done. And simply to eliminate them from history and to the jump, you know, since from pre-1968, the jump all the way sort of into uh, the period of armed struggle is simply, I mean, it's ahistorical, uh, uh, apart from uh, anything else. So I think she was simply wrong uh, about that. But she was expressing a sort of nationalist consensus uh, point of view, you know. So it's a, a, what else would you say? I suppose, you know, sort of a... a, a Occasionally, it strikes me that I see things differently from the uh, uh, an awful lot uh, of other people, and that's why I see them. Sort of, it doesn't mean I'm right, but it means I see things a wee bit differently. And uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I, I, I think people are sometimes perplexed by the politics of socialists. How does that work? You know, sort of. I mean, it's a, uh, what's that got to do with Catholics versus Protestants? And if the answer is fuck all, then you're sort of outside the way that uh, uh, Northern Ireland politics is dominated by sectarianism. And the idea has gathered ground to it. It's become almost sort of a, 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 an established cons- a, a consensus. Is that, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> you, you touched on it there, the, the strikes. Um, um, yeah. Kind of given the, the extent of the cost of living crisis and the impact it's having on families yeah. and households, um, do you think the time has come for a general strike now? Is that oh, yeah. Oh, no, I think the time has come for a general strike. And, you know, 
therapy. I come from a Trotskyist political uh, point. That's why I've asked to, def- to define myself what sort of a socialist I am, a Trotskyist. Uh, yeah, uh, and to the slogan of general strike, <laughs> to be honest, I think forever it's bound to be true because it's said all the time by socialists, so sooner or later we're bound to be right. And so I do think by all the uh, uh, strikes that are going on, the fact that it's a common cause, which is rampant inflation, sort of lagging wages, and so on, a lot of other associated things like that, but the destruction of the health service and so forth. There's so much opportunity for common cause, and there's also a degree of anger, which is going to put people onto the streets. I think a general strike is the only thing which is going to bring this whole issue to a head. To, to, to go back to yeah. your saying that you're a lifestyle career, yeah. when would be, or when was it, when, when were you elected, I suppose, for the first time? Or was I, 2016, the storm election. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And is there a reason why you think that your, your politics still doesn't maybe translate on the, the vote? So, Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because in all my politics, including at elections, I don't emphasize the need to let's get enough people in Stormont or Westminster or anywhere. You know, let's elect the biggest number of uh, MPs. That's not my priority. Sort of, I'm not being stop people before profits. Priority. What we're trying to do, as James Larkin says, to spread the divine gospel of discontent. You know, and the real importance of elections is that. Elections are a time when people are politically engaged. When they won't let you talk, yes, it's the same when you go around doors during elections, people, are, uh, uh, people will talk to you about politics. You can also, I mean, it's a uh, uh, election campaign is uh, not different to fighting, sort of, to get support for a strike. You know, they try to win people to a position and say to them all the time, no, voting for me is not going to end your problems and so forth. But we want you to uh, uh, engage with us and we want to sort of have a, if you're a worker, we want you to be a militant trade, trade unionist. We want you to be a militant member of your community and try to argue that. So that's what we would be arguing, sort of. And that's more important to me, sort of, than to people like me. Sort of, and Jeff really is, sort of, than getting elected. I was elected in uh, 2016 and I often occasionally have a paranoid thought that the reason why it changed it from six MLA's per constituency to five after I was elected that I was being targeted. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure that's not, and it's not true, it's definitely not true. But I sometimes think about that they say he's in sixth place now, I should be changed. So they changed the whole of it, Arthur, and so that's happened. And then I remember because I was walking out of storm once on me when that, the, uh, uh, after I completed my stint there, so I didn't look behind me. And this is not true, but I sort of like to tell the story. I, I saw the whole of the storm and crumbling behind me as I walked about <laughs> which wasn't far because it was months before Stormont uh, uh, I think I really enjoyed my time there got the old shirt of an awful lot of people I liked an awful lot of people around that time that you were elected in 2016 no. you saying I personally came on for a bit of criticism people before profit for mm. um, back in the leave campaign oh yeah yeah and, yeah, yeah oh I see yeah, oh I'm even more strongly now against the European Union than I was. It's a machine for war. People talk about freedom of movement. I mean, it makes me sick when I hear people saying we, we should be in the European Union because there's freedom of movement. So, no, there's fucking not freedom of movement. They're drowning Libyans by the score in the Mediterranean Sea to keep them out of the European Union. There's a thousand kilometres of barbed wire down the eastern flank of uh, the European Union to keep migrants out. 
you know, it's not just Britain, sort of the Dalsis, and also the European Union, so increasingly, and I said, I wasn't the only person saying it, that it would militarise eventually, and it's now militarising. The European Union is involved in imperialism in Africa. The European Union, under Frontex, sort of the part of the, and Ireland's part, uh, a, a sort of, of, of this, is increasingly sort of an armed organisation. I see sort of the European Union sort of as an armed bloc, sort of in a world that needs more than ever to be united. That's uh, a... What's the difference these days between the European Union and NATO? They overlap uh, so much. But people say the European Union, great. Does that include its involvement in sort of uh, a heavy weapon? Does that include supplying weapons to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and the United Arab Emirates to, I mean, to bomb Yemen to bits? You know, which is the most sort of uh, persecuted country in the world. You know, sort of not a small country, more than 20 million people. There is, I mean, of half of them are refugees. There are refugees, refugees sort of uh, uh, in Somalia. There's refugee camps in Somalia from people fleeing from the European Union that have been driven out. I mean, it, the way it's presented, it's just wrong, it seems to me. And I don't know, sort of, it's a, a, I can see why people would think it's, I mean, there's relentless, it seems to me, media positivity sort of about uh, the European Union. I don't think we should believe a word about it any more than we should believe a word sort of about what's been said in the mainstream media about Russia. I mean, I'm against the Russian invasion. I mean, I think uh, I mean, as a Trotskyist, I would have against Russia anyway, against the whole Stalin system. But the Ukraine war, I mean, has exposed all these differences. And we get the leaders of the European Union and fucking Kiev. And the people out there, it's a war undertaken sides. Now they say, oh, it's peaceful. You know, because of it. it's not, and the European Union sort of has a problem of its own way. Now, I'm against the European Union as a concept, always was, sort of, and I'm not going to change that now. Sorry for a bit of a broad question yeah. here, but um, I was wanting to know just your view about how the political <clears throat> landscape sh- um, shifted over the last 60 years. Well, I think the political landscape internationally and locally it has. There's some things never change, some things never change, which is that the rich exploit the poor. That's true internationally, uh, uh, as well as nationally and locally. It's true everywhere. That's what class struggle uh, is about. You know, class struggle is not something sort of that I choose to wage or the people before profit or anybody else thinks would be a good idea. Class struggle happens day after day after day. What Marx and Lenin understood by class struggle was the robbery of workers of their wages. See, a tr- dramatic example of it. This hasn't changed. Hasn't changed since the 19th century. When you see sort of that gas prices are being put up, while the bosses of gas companies and privatised gas companies are literally earning thousands of pounds a day individually, they're earning a thousand pounds a day. Same is true with water companies. There's nothing sort of uh, uh, we can't say sort of uh, what's going to last forever, but we can say a chart of revolution: the rich are going to be doing down the poor. This episode of The Bell Tell was presented by Garrett Hargan. The production was by Kieran Dunbar and Garrett Hargan. Sound design by Graham Davidson. The clips were from the Socialist Workers' Party, British Pathé, Flickr Media, RTE and the BBC. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. 
Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.